Well, good morning. I am so glad that you're here. I've been looking forward to this morning and to the opportunity for us to get to know Doug and Lashana Peterson. Uh, you might remember Doug from last fall. They, they were going to maybe be here in person, but then because of the pandemic, they weren't here. But Doug was the talking head up on the screen. He recorded a message for us. So you've already heard from him. Uh, but why don't you introduce yourselves? Uh, some here have no idea who you are. So introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your family. Well, good morning, Community Heights. Thanks for having us. Um, we were bummed last fall when we couldn't come out and really, really grateful that it worked out in our schedule to be able to come and visit you in person, to meet you face to face and share with you. Uh, my name is Doug Peterson. This is my wife, Lashana. Uh, we have two little girls, River, who is five, and Alora, who is three who are back home uh, with my parents in Lincoln, Nebraska. So Lincoln, Nebraska is kind of home for us when we are on this side of the sea. Although typically where we live is a small country in West Africa on the other side of the sea. Um, so we are international workers with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And we serve in a country working with a few people groups that are 99% Muslim and unreached. And by unreached, all I mean is that they have little to no access to the good news of Jesus. So if you asked one of those people, who is Jesus? What is the gospel? What does it mean that he died on the cross? They could not articulate an answer to any of those questions. So uh, we are part of a team trying to plant churches amongst those people groups to change that dynamic. So you guys are like 31 and you've spent a whole term already in West Africa and you even are, have re-enlisted for another deployment and you want to go back, which, which is amazing. So now talk to our folks just for a minute about how our denomination, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, why they're strategically sending missionaries where they are sending them because you're a perfect example of one of those couples. Yeah, so the, the Alliance's strategic goal, the focus that they have is on what we call unreached people groups. So it's people around the world who don't know Jesus and don't have access to learn about Jesus. And so um, this might be a shocking statistic, it was for me, but even today, 2,000 years post-resurrection, there are still 4,000 distinct people groups around the world consisting of 3.4 billion people who don't have access to the good name of Jesus, who don't know what Jesus accomplished 2,000 years ago and what's available to them. And so the Alliance's burden is to change that, is to have gospel saturation around the world. We can't control what people do with that information, but we want every man, woman, and child around the world to have a compelling picture of Jesus and to be equipped to make a choice as to whether or not they want to give their life to him. So Lashana, even though you have two little kids, you're not there totally free and clear as just the, the missionary wife, but there's actually, you're kind of an employee, you're a missionary as well. So yeah. talk to us about what that looks like. Yeah, um, I really felt strongly when I went out, even though we had two little kids. Uh, you often see the wife is just kind of the full time stay at home mom and not that there is anything wrong with that. I just really felt burdened to participate in any way that I could. Um, and I really wanted to teach. We have a youth center, what we call a center, where we teach English. Um, that is our main way to build relationships with people. We are really just in 
in the beginning stages of um, trying to plant churches. Um, and so what that means right now is we're building relationships. We're looking for seekers, people who are, we could possibly begin to read the Bible with. So um, I'm at the center uh, two days a week. I'm teaching English, um, trying to build relationships. I've actually read the Bible with a few different women um, in order to just you know, uh, some have been Christian, or a couple have been Christian, um, who, when one actually gave her life to Christ for the first time, um, she had been a Christian her whole life, would claim to be, and then she gave her life to Jesus, but then another Muslim. Um, so just trying to establish a community of believers um, so that we can plant a church. You know? So now we did this in the first service. We're changing the order around just a little bit, because <laughs> I want you to talk about for a minute, sometimes we think that missionaries are like superhuman right? And they could just, oh, they just fly around the world and they just do all this stuff and hey, it's all good. But just talk to us about like getting, having culture shock. And then once you're over there, you're like, oh, rats. Like I can't just run home for a minute. I can't just get into a culture where everybody speaks English. Like what was that like when you actually got there and you knew you were there not for months, but for several years? Uh, I mean, it was terrifying. So uh, Lashana and I, uh, we are not the smartest people in the room. Um, we, uh, we were so, when we felt the Lord burdening us to go, we, we actively fought back and we're like, I, you know, there are more capable people out there. There are smarter people within your kingdom that you could send out. I, you might be making a bad call. Um, but the Lord was insistent. And so uh, we went trusting that he knew what he was doing. Um, and when we got in country, I mean, we were just so overwhelmed. We were so terrified. We were like, we've made a huge mistake. But at that point, you can't turn around. Like it's too late. You've already did, committed, did, you're already did there. You literally, did you literally wonder if maybe you had made a mistake? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, yes. It's like if, um, you know, so we're from Nebraska. If the Husker coach said, Doug, I want you to be QB, I'd be like, what is wrong with you? That's just a terrible decision. It's not like I couldn't sit on the field and do that job, but I would be horrible at it. So what are you thinking? You know, that was the sense we had. I don't think we sensed that we heard wrong. It just felt like, God, I don't think you know what you're doing. You might want to talk with your advisors and rethink this whole strategy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it was terrifying and, uh, we felt completely unequipped and completely incapable. Um, but wouldn't you know it, that's what God often does with his people is he, is he takes those people and then he begins forming them and equipping them through his spirit to do things that they could never do. And we've never been more aware that we are so incapable apart from the spirit and apart from prayer like those are the two things that anything that advances and moves forward, it's not us, you know, because we're aware of our folly and our insignificance and our stupidity and all of that. Um, it's not that we are anything. It's God moving through us graciously. You didn't look adoringly and admiringly at your husband and say, I know you can do it, sweetheart. Talk, talk to us about what you experienced. Yeah. Uh, well, it, yeah, it was definitely a challenge. I mean, we, I feel like we it just dawned on me. So I, I think at first when you go overseas or even short term, um, like a few days or 
a week or so, you, you're like, oh wow, you have the rosy colored glasses, this is an adventure, it's kind of fun. Um, and then when you realize you're stuck there, it's like, what are we doing? I just lost my culture, I lost my language, I lost my family and friends, and I lost at the grocery store exactly, I know exactly where that thing is I need on the shelf, but I can't, I, it's you know, thousands of miles across the sea, I can't get there. Um, so there's just things like that that was really hard. I think one thing, uh, I think our marriage definitely faced challenges there. Uh, so what? I didn't always ignore it. Said, Your oh, marriage honey. faced challenges? Oh my goodness, yes, yeah. You're missionaries, for goodness sake. <laughs> yeah, so, was, so tease that yeah, out a little bit. Yeah, we our know. first, our. Uh, you just threw red meat yeah, to Jeff, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> He's very interested now. <laughs> yeah, the, Doug would say our hardest year of marriage is our first year in France, where we did language school. And I would counter that and say, no, absolutely not. Our first, our hardest year of marriage was our first year in country. Um, cause I think God brought stuff to the surface, like our, some conflict to the surface in France. And then it just got really revved up <laughs> in Guinea. So, uh, or in our host country, the thing that really, uh, I noticed was a shift in my own heart of like, I was very appeasing, before I would like, oh, I was a peacemaker and that's sort of my natural disposition. And then our first year in country, I was like, nope, not gonna do that anymore. It's not my fault, it's your fault. So um, we had a lot to work through that first year. But I do think that um, we did take on over time more postures of trying to be cheerleaders for each other in a country that's very hard to live in. Yeah, yeah stress has a way of bringing junk to the surface, you know, yeah. and it just gets exposed. So it's been a sanctifying process. Yeah. So already we've learned that you can be in the center of God's will, but also feel totally terrified and inept at what God has called you to do. And it's okay. It's part of the process of, let's use your word, sanctification, becoming more of who God wants us to be. Now, I think that situations come into our lives and we can look at them and say, this is gonna derail me from what God has called me to do. Or we can look at them and say, oh, uh, this is not gonna derail me. It's actually gonna allow me to become, again, more who God wants me to be because that's the way I choose to look at it. So you guys, I'm just thinking out loud here. You guys have been through a situation. So as, as you feel free to, why don't you share that? Yeah, we, uh, when we came back here to the States from uh, where we serve, it was at the end of last July, um, Lashana was about 20 weeks pregnant. And so we got here on the ground and uh, went to get the ultrasound and all that. We found out that our son had a condition called trisomy 18, which we had never heard of before. Um, and the specialist working with us told us uh, there's a real, real good chance that he will die in womb. And if he is birthed, um, he will probably die within 48 hours. Um, and so uh, all of last fall was processing that information. Um, we asked thousands of people to pray with us that God would do a miracle, save our son's life, um, display a picture of his power and all of that. Um, but we wanted to have a posture of trusting him no matter what happened. You know, um, and so our son was born on December 31st. His name uh, is Judah Matthew, uh, and he died two weeks later. So January 14th, he died. Um, and so this, uh, yeah, this spring then has been a season of grieving and mourning. 
um, and wrestling with uh, all the questions that come with that. Um, but holding on to uh, hope and faith and, and trust that uh, God knows what he's up to and we can trust him. Um, he's worth trusting in and believing in. Um, and that Judah's life uh, is, it will be redeemed. Um, certainly in the life to come, we'll meet Judah one day. In all the lost time as a family we didn't get, we will get for eternity. Um, but even in this life, somehow his life will be redeemed. And that's what we're holding on to. It's part of what compels us to go back is we had this picture of uh, returning to our Muslim friends, holding our son as a picture of the power of Jesus' name. Um, and uh, now we're going to go back and we, we don't have that. <laughs> Instead, we have uh, sorrow and grief and loss. But Jesus is still in that too. And we are eagerly anticipating how he's going to redeem Judah's life for the sake of those people. So that m maybe one day they'll meet Judah with us. Yeah. You guys were very insistent on um, sharing his name, talking about him. Uh, you, had, you had two weeks with Judah. What were those two weeks like for you? Um, yeah, it was, we knew we were, it was a gift. We knew it was special time that we had because um, we didn't know how long it was going to last. So each day just felt like a gift. Um, and we'd be liars if we didn't say that we begged for more time, of course. Um, but we were grateful for what we did get. And um, he was just a typical newborn <laughs> in a lot of ways. He ate and slept. He, he changed a lot of diapers. And um, Did he keep you up? <laughs> yes, he did keep Good, us up. You lost up sleep. That's right. Okay. Yep, we lost sleep. Good boy. Um, yeah. And uh, I think the biggest difference between him and like our other children is we had to syringe feed him. Um, we didn't have any sort of monitors or hookups or anything like that. We were grateful. They let us go home and just kind of get, they, we got an oxygen tank. Um, there's a lot of defects uh, within his body that we knew where, yeah, he had a heart issue, um, lungs were an issue, kidneys, brain cysts, all sorts of things. Um, but yeah, we, it, was, it was a special time and it was beautiful to get to see our girls spend time with him and get to know him, get to love on him, hold him. Yeah. yeah. So you came out, you're, you're going to churches and um, you're talking about him. How, how are you able to do that? Why, why not just go hide in a cave somewhere and not deal with the grief in public? What benefit is there to sharing the story? Um, yeah, I, I think there, there are a few things. Um, well, one, I mean, I mentioned we, we anticipate his life being redeemed for our good, for the good of those around us, for the advancement of God's kingdom. Um, and part of how that happens is we've just seen over and over again when people hear, when people hear Judah's story, they're touched. And his life is able to touch them in profound ways that uh, we can't. And so um, it feels like part of honoring him well and honoring his life is sharing his story and allowing God to do whatever he's going to do with that, you know. Um, we also uh, were aware that grief and trauma and loss, it's not something you can tuck in a box and put in the corner and it goes away. Um, if you 
if you don't get it out, it leaks out somewhere, you know, and it becomes toxic. And so um, we want to be uh, just open about the journey we're on. And that doesn't mean we go out spouting our pain everywhere and anywhere. You know, we want to be wise about that. But um, we invited people into the journey of praying for Judah in expectancy and hope. And I think part of honoring that is being honest about where we're at now in that process. We talked about how in America we have a hard time weeping with those who weep. And you guys have now uh, been four months. And we as a church want to be a healing place. Pastor Trenton talked about that this morning. And yet you found that in our culture, the greater American culture and the American church culture, we're not that good at that. So you have permission to speak freely. Tell us how we can be better to be there for one another. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I've been surprised by a few things. Um, just, I told a story earlier of family members that have come to our house to visit after Judah died. And uh, there was an initial, we're sorry for your loss. But after that, there was nothing. They never said a word about our son. And I remember thinking, why, why are you guys here? We love you, we care about you, we're glad you're here, but if you're here to be with us in this, then you're not doing that. And that was really confusing. And we'd open the doors to try to talk to them about it. And it was just not walked, those doors will not walk through at all. And um, just similar experiences of, you know, people come alongside you maybe for a time. And then after a certain period of time, for some people, it's like the funeral. Okay, that's, that's when they're done. And then for some people, it's a couple months and then a few more months later for some other people. But after a while, we just noticed that yeah, we're, we feel alone in this journey. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a very lonely road to walk down. Um, I, I'm cognizant that other people are thinking about us, but it is uncommon that people actually say, hey, we're thinking of you. We see you. We remember you. It's actually very rare that we hear that. Um, even though I, I think people are aware of us, uh, people don't say anything. I think people are very afraid to say the wrong thing or to say something offensive. Um, and so they, and it makes them uncomfortable. I mean, deep pain and loss makes us uncomfortable. We, we don't want to go there. And so there's an aversion I think we have to actually entering into people's pain, you know? Um, so we're deeply honored when people say, tell us the story. What was his name? Uh, what did you observe about him? What do you miss about him? Like those sort of questions, um, they honor his life and they honor our journey and where we're at. And uh, we don't always want to answer those questions with everyone all the time. But asking those questions invites, it opens a door that we then get a choice. It honors us with the choice of entering in or not, you know. Um, and when people don't do that when they don't talk about him. Um, it's just this elephant in the room that we are very aware of and then we feel alone, we feel isolated, we feel unseen, unsupported. Um, it's hard to go through pain when you feel like no one's alongside you. So what should we do? How do we approach people who have been through something? I mean, the loss of a child, let alone the way that she went through it, is heartbreaking, it's horrific. And 
we don't really know what to say to a couple like you. What, how, just tell us, when we approach you, what do we say? How do we do that? Sometimes as simple as, man, I'm really sorry for your loss. Even if you don't say anything else, that addresses it. And it tells us, you see us, you understand. And uh, I, I mean, I think everyone, if they had to face us, would say, I'm sorry. Few people actually take the initiative to do that. Um, I, I think for some reason there's this sentiment of, oh, you're, you're busy or you don't, maybe you're doing okay and you don't want to talk about it or I don't want to bring it up if it makes you uncomfortable. Or, I don't know. We have all these imaginations of how bad it could go if we say anything. So we just don't go there, you know. Um, even the few people, I mean, I could tell you stories that are like, wow, you should not have said that. Even those people who actually do say the wrong thing everyone fears they will say, um, it's not offensive to us. I mean, we maybe will laugh at the obtuseness of it, but we are still, we, we see and we appreciate there's a desire to come alongside us. Um, and that, yeah, that's really meaningful for us. And I think knowing the journey's not over in a few months, knowing that, that people probably want someone to walk alongside them long-term even. Yeah. Um, and finding those people is rare, yeah. And, and being willing to just ask questions. Um, sometimes people can't really voice what they need in a moment. Yeah. And, and the hardest thing to do as you're grieving is to try to coach someone on how to help you. <laughs> um, so I think, I think those are a bit things that we're learning still too a little bit. I, I feel like I have had a lot of grace and I'm not mad or angry at anyone because I feel like I've been the guilty party of not knowing how to walk alongside people who are in pain or who are grieving. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah, that it's just been a gift in some ways to be able to see and, and see others who are in pain and be able to know how to walk alongside them better ourselves. Yeah. We were on the phone talking and you said to me, Oh yeah, we are so much more sensitive now of people who are going through difficulty. Yeah. Um, I said to you, you have permission to speak freely about wh whatever you think we need to hear as an American church. You've been in West Africa and at my last church we used to do these nights, I call them permission to speak freely night for missionaries because when missionaries go to churches, there are certain things that they really don't talk about or wouldn't say because, you know, they don't want to rile people up. Um, kind of like that with pastors too, by the way. Um, but I said, well, you know, what, what would you share with us if you had permission to speak freely? And we just took a posture of, hey, I need to learn. We need to learn as a church. Let's hear from a, from a couple who they're going to hit the road, you know, after tomorrow and they won't have to feel anybody's wrath, so let us have it. What do you, what do you think we need to hear? You have permission to speak freely. Yeah, thanks. Um, I want to I want to share um, a little bit out of the Gospel of Mark, and then just talk about some of the implications of it. Um, and I, I'm coming at this as someone who, over the last four years, as we've been overseas, Mark has been a big part of my discipleship to Jesus. Um, I've, yeah, I've just been in it over and over and over and over again. Um, so I've been learning a lot from it. And uh, I guess I just want to share a little bit of what has been revealed to me. Uh, part of what I love about Mark is Mark as an author it consistently wants to subvert the expectations of his audience. 
and he wants them to be arrested in the moment that they're exploring his story and ask themselves, where am I relative to my discipleship to Jesus, and am I really following him? And so there are all these moments throughout Mark that cause us to stop and reflect and say, man, where am I at? Am I really following behind what Jesus has taught me? So uh, early on in, in Mark, in chapter 4, he tells, Jesus teaches this famous parable that I'm sure many of you are very familiar with, the parable of the sower. And it's this picture of a, a guy sowing seed. And Jesus outlines these four different soils that the seed falls upon. And then when he's in private with his disciples, they're like, hey, that was a really confusing story. What in the world is going on? And so he explains to them exactly what the parable meant. And so he says, uh, I'm like the sower. I go out and when I sow seed, I'm sowing my word. I'm preaching about the kingdom of God and the gospel that I'm here to proclaim. But as I do that, uh, as I speak the words that God wants his people to hear, it's going to be revelatory. It will reveal the state of people's hearts and where they're at, the posture they have towards God and their ability to receive what it is that he would say. And so uh, in the parable, some of the seed falls on, um, on a road and a bird comes and snatches up the seed before it can actually get planted. And Jesus says, that's like Satan, who when the word goes out, he comes and he snatches it away before it can bear fruit. And then there's some of the seed that falls onto rocky ground. And it takes root quickly, it springs up fast, but then it withers away when the sun scorches it. And Jesus says, that's like people who, they hear the word and they receive it with joy, but when trouble and tribulation come because of the word, because of the implications of what they've received, then they fall away and it doesn't bear fruit. And then he says, there's some seed that falls amongst thorns and it gets choked out. And Jesus says, these are the people who hear the word, but the troubles of this world and their preoccupation with the things going on around them, it doesn't allow the word to actually take root and bear fruit. And then the fourth soil is good soil. And these are the people who receive the word. And for them, they bear fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. So this exponential bearing of fruit for these people who are actually postured in such a way that they can receive what it is that God has said. And throughout the gospel of Mark, this parable becomes uh, a paradigm for understanding the actions of the people that Jesus actually encounters. And it's very subversive. The people who you would think would be in the category of the fourth soil, namely the disciples, the people who are walking with Jesus, reveal themselves consistently to actually have a heart posture of the first three soils, okay? So track with me, I'm going somewhere with this. If you skip a few chapters ahead, we get to uh, Mark chapter 8. And in Mark chapter 8, it's the first time that Jesus says uh, what it is that awaits him in Jerusalem. So he tells his disciples that he's going to go and suffer and die. Now, just prior to his telling this, he asks the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter has this emphatic declaration. He says, you are the Christ. And in the Gospel of Mark, it's the first time outside of God the Father at the baptism declaring who Jesus is, it's the first time that someone actually declares Jesus' identity. So Peter has this like mountain high experience. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah we've been waiting for. Jesus then tells him what it means for him to be the Messiah. So the word has gone out. And here's Peter's response. Peter took him aside and re began to rebuke him. <laughs> 
So Jesus' word goes out. Has it penetrated Peter's heart? Has it landed in good soil? No. Peter pulls him aside and says, what are you talking about? That is not what it means for you to be the Messiah. You are not going to go and suffer and die. That's not how you build a kingdom. What are you talking about? And Jesus has to rebuke him then in front of the other disciples. A little while later in chapter 9, second time Jesus says to his disciples, the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Immediately after he says this, there's a story of them going uh, to Capernaum, and when they get to where they're going, Jesus questions them. He says, hey, what were you discussing on the road? You know, when I was telling you I'm going to go suffer and die, what were you talking about? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. So Jesus says, I'm going to go and suffer and die. That's my role as the anointed Messiah. And meanwhile, these guys are in the back arguing with each other, which of them is the greatest amongst each other. So has the word of God penetrated into their hearts? Is it bearing fruit or is it being choked out by the thorns, by their preoccupation with their own reputation and standing? Skip over a little bit further to chapter 10. For a third time, a last time, Jesus outlines exactly what awaits him. He says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. This is the third time now Jesus has explicitly and plainly told the disciples what awaits him. Immediately after he says this, verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. A very strange thing to ask of someone who just told you they're about to go suffer and die. Jesus says to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. So, James and John, have they got it? Do they understand what awaits Jesus and consequently what awaits them because they're supposed to be following in the footsteps of Jesus? No. Completely preoccupied with their own position of standing, their own influence, their own power in the kingdom to come. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are preoccupied with their political imaginations of what the geopolitical entity of Israel is supposed to be and how they're going to get there and what positions they're going to get in the coming kingdom. They are totally, totally having the word choked out by those things. And these are included in the Gospel of Mark, not to shame the disciples or to make us think, man, what's wrong with those guys? They're included to arrest us and to cause us to reflect, man, am I the same way? To what extent do I allow my imaginations of what I think should be to choke out the word of God so it doesn't bear fruit in my life? To what extent am I caught up in my reputation and my desire for influence, my desire for power, my desire for more, and I actually prevent the word of God from bearing fruit in my life because I allow things like thorns to remain in place within the soil of my heart. Yeah, and all, this t all that time, these people who are fumbling, 
they're the outsiders, or the, excuse me, they're the insiders. And you see in there, did you talk about this? The, the people who are getting it, who are, it's connecting with them, they're the outsiders. They're the people who aren't supposed to be getting it. Uh, it's the Roman centurion. Yeah. It's the woman who, uh, with the bleeding problem, who Jesus heals. Yeah. Um, there are all these outsiders throughout the gospel who you wouldn't think are gonna be the ones to become the heroes of the story. Um, the Syrophoenician woman and the demoniac in Gerizim and things like that. These are the characters who consistently fall on their face at the, in front of Jesus and say, Lord, help me. <laughs> they're the people who get it because they're in desperate need for him. So when do the disciples get it? They didn't right. during the time Jesus was with them apparently. Or are these just little vignettes of they, they were, they're one-offs. Actually, they got it all the time, but every once in a while they just forgot. Yeah, so uh, Matthew closes out his gospel with this moment we call the Great Commission in which Jesus tells his disciples to go into all the world. Right before he does that, the disciples gather and Matthew explicitly tells us some of them doubted. <laughs> so even in that moment, as he's commissioning to them to get, go out and to continue the work he started, there's still those amongst them who are like, yeah, I don't know about this. Post-resurrection. Post-resurrection. Acts opens with Jesus telling them, hey, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, the ends of the earth. You're going to go forth in power. And they're like, okay, great. When's the kingdom of God coming though? Like they're still preoccupied with their political imaginations of what's supposed to happen. They still don't get it. As Acts unfolds, there are still moments like Peter goes to the house of Cornelius and the Holy Spirit comes upon this Gentile Roman family and he's like, wow, well, I guess anyone can be received into the family of God. And the whole Jerusalem council's like, you did what now? You know, so there's still this progressive unveiling of what it means to actually disciple to Jesus, allow him to be on the throne and call the shots and to follow after. But once the Holy Spirit comes and they receive the spirit, they begin to gain insight. And then there's this progressive outplaying of what it actually means to live uh, committed to a kingdom not of this world. So what are we in danger of? What could be lurking in us that you are speaking to through that passage? Yeah, so I, I think it's the exact same stuff. So, I mean, we, we just sang this song, uh, I'm surrendered now, I give it all to you, right? And if you've committed your life to Jesus, that's what you've said. You've said, you're the king, I'm subservient to you, I'm committed to your kingdom. My life is open, do whatever you want. Okay, that means you've given up the right to all the things you own. All your stuff is no longer yours. It's for your community and it's for God. You've given up your rights. You've given up your right to justice and what you're due. Just like Jesus did, that's what you've committed yourself to. Okay, so to the extent to which you try to self-protect and to hoard and to gain more and to get ahead, to advance your agenda or what you think should be happening, to that extent, you run the risk of doing exactly what the disciples did, missing what it is that Jesus wants to rot in you, around you, and through you. And again, I say this as someone who is constantly in a posture of trying to self-reflect and figure that out, what does this mean? to actually be discipled closer into the image and likeness of Jesus. It's not easy. I'm not saying that this is simple, 
But the risk we run is we think we are being discipled by Jesus. We think we're the good soil when all along his word is being choked out. It's not bearing fruit. And that should arrest us and that should cause us to go, holy cow, man, what, what do I need to uproot in my life so I actually am doing the thing that I committed to doing, however long it is ago, that I was baptized into death and raised into new life. So, uh, I mean, I, I think discipleship to Jesus should completely influence um, our political imaginations. How do we show up in the public square? What do we advocate for? It should influence the way we make decisions. How do we spend our money? Uh, what do we do with what we've been entrusted? It should influence how do we interact with our neighbors and our families? I mean, it should be pervasive throughout our lives. Um, one example maybe of this is the, the country where we serve the believers there, they're a small minority, but believers there have a reputation of being people who are suckers, people you can take advantage of. And so they are regularly mocked and mistreated. And the reason they have that reputation, and it'll be explicitly said, is, well, you know, Christians, they're suckers because they will never seek revenge. You can do whatever you want to them, and they will not try to get back at you. Okay, why do they do that? Because that's what Jesus did and that's what he taught his followers to do. Okay, so that's an outworking of the Sermon on the Mount. That's a community of people who have said, man, Jesus told us to never seek revenge and then he modeled that when he was on the cross praying on behalf of the people who had persecuted him and mocked him and killed him. That's what we're supposed to do as well. And so it looks like utter foolishness, but it's actually the power of the gospel at work because it's tr completely transformed the way that they interact with their community. So then following Jesus actually means something. And sometimes he, yeah. it causes us to sacrifice and our lives should be different. Yeah. And in, in America, to follow Jesus is to show up here and sit and listen, exchange a few pleasantries and leave and then live your life however you want to, yeah. right? I mean, that's, and you could, you could show up as a Christian in America by simply doing that. And what Jesus calls us to is so much greater. It's so much greater. You guys are gonna go back for another term. When do you think you'll get there? Yeah, uh, our schedule departure date, um, it's not, we don't have tickets or anything, is at the end of July. Um, we arrived at the end of last July and um, you have a full year uh, and then you return at the end of that year. Uh, for us, however, we're looking at opportunities uh, to get some intensive counseling before we go back um, with the loss of our son um, and going back into a really hard um, context. We are aware that we want to be well prepared. Um, we want to be on good footing when we go back. We want to be able to deal with our grief in a context that is really hard and may not be, we might not have support. So because of that, we are looking at programs to get involved in or to be a part of, to go through um, in order to receive some counseling um, and that might delay our departure. Okay. So we don't know when that is, though, yet. 
you don't know when the departure is or when the yeah. program is. Well, yes, yeah. both. <laughs> oh, both. Yeah. Yes, we're looking it's at... It's just fuzzy. Yeah. yeah. The one we are hopeful of is October. Um, it's a three-week program. Um, it would involve our whole family. Um, and we are, yeah, that would be our ideal situation is to be able to go to this particular program. We contacted them a while back, and they said July was full. And so then um, they said August was full. It just kind of came a, a domino effect. So we're waiting. There's just a... We have to figure things out before we can say yes. And But there um, are a few different yeah. intensives that we've looked at that would be anywhere from two to three weeks. That's one of them. There are others that are in July or August or things like that. And so we're working in concert with our leadership, trying to make a wise decision about what would allow us to go back in the best place of strength and equipment. But you know, seeking counseling like that, you are admitting weakness. <laughs> we have no problem doing that. We live in a country where we look like utter fools all the time. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, we are very weak. There's no doubt about it. But you're displaying wisdom because you know. Well, you know. You've been there. Once you get back, you only have available to you what's there. And so you want to get back. Now, this is going to be probably expensive. Do you, I mean, since we're friends and we're talking about it, you want to give us a dollar amount? And is that part of what the Alliance does? Is it part of your budget or is it extra? Yeah, so uh, the, the three-week program we're looking at, that would be our entire family, it would be around 8000 bucks. Um, and so uh, we are asking people who feel so led if they'd be willing to come alongside us and support us in that journey so that we can return um, a little more healed, a little more processed, and better equipped to know how to continue to move forward well and in health. So Yeah, and all these programs are catered to people who are on the mission field to some extent or another. Oh, they're so, catered to people on the mission field. Yeah. Or people the, in vocational ministry, yeah. at least. Yeah. So they, they are aware of our situation yeah. and what we're going back to, as well as our circumstances of loss in our family. So as Pastor Trenton uh, emphasized this morning, that part of our vision as a church is to be a healing place. So I think it would be neat for us to be able to give. If you feel led to give toward that, um, I suppose on your offering envelope, you could just write uh, Peterson Counseling on there, and it would go toward that fund to help you guys. Now, the, the easy thing is to, is to pay the cost. The hard thing is to actually go through it and invest yourself and engage. Um, but I know you guys will do that because you've already proven that over these last six, eight months as you face this crisis. Um, what... Uh, what parting shot do you want to leave our congregation with? I didn't, I didn't do this in the first service, but this is it. This is the end. It's 1129. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think uh, I shared this in the past service, so I'll just share it again. Um, early on when we were in uh, the country where we serve, um, I remember distinctly sitting on our porch, drinking some coffee, and... Uh, I, I've just felt so out of my element. I felt like everything I'm seeing is unfamiliar to me. Everything I'm hearing is unfamiliar to me. Everything I'm smelling is unfamiliar to me. This is not home. And I just had this longing to be back home, back in Lincoln, where I feel comfortable and I feel at peace and I, I know what life is supposed to be like. And uh, I had this realization of, oh man, Lincoln's not really home anymore. Like we left Lincoln. We've been in France for a year. Now we're here in West Africa. This is where we've committed ourselves to be. 
that's not really home, and this is certainly not home. Holy cow, we're homeless. <laughs> where do we belong? And that question of where do we belong was just like, like it just was a dagger in my heart. I was like, I don't know that we belong anywhere. And in that moment, I felt like the Lord said really clearly, you belong to a kingdom not of this world, and your home is coming. You'll be there one day, but you do not belong to this world. And it was such a clarifying moment. It was just one of those moments that like the lens came into focus. And this thing that I knew to be true in my head, I just felt deeply in my heart. And uh, I guess one of the things I would uh, challenge, encourage all of you with is, this is not your home. And if you feel like Newton, Iowa, or the greater United States is home, you've missed what it means to belong to a kingdom not of this world. And I would just encourage you to reflect on that. Nice. Thank you. Would you join me as I pray for them? Could we all together pray for this couple? God, we come before you as a congregation, and here are Doug and Lashana, and they have shared their hearts, they've shared their hurts, uh, they have shared some victories and some concerns for the future. And Lord, Holy Spirit, would you fill them uh, with your power and with your peace? And God, would you open up for them an avenue of healing and restoration uh, sufficient to return? And understanding that uh, grief and struggle and the feeling of loss, uh, the loss of Judah, Lord, is going to be something that is going to be ongoing. Uh, but we pray, Lord, that uh, Judah's story and his life would, uh, it has been life-changing for them, but that it would be, continue to be life-changing for others. Uh, God, we know that you don't waste the pain in our lives, but that you use it to, to strengthen and encourage others. So God, would you do that for them? And then, Lord, uh, provide all that they need uh, in every way as they go through these next months. And we, we pray for their girls, we pray for their parents and their, their families. God, we pray uh, your provision and your peace in their lives as well. We thank you for this time. We ask your blessing upon the Petersons, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.